Coming up next, Upstate's HealthLink on Air. On this week's program, we'll learn how to broaden mental health support services. The people who come in most contact with them are their teachers or school counselors or other people, as you mentioned, involved in youth organizations. They're the people who we want to train to kind of act as a scout for those problems. Plus, the latest on what expectant and new parents need to know. We also do provide information on the risks, the benefits um, of the various OB um, interventions, medical interventions that may come up in labor. And osteoporosis and what can be done about it. We know that when people in general are sitting around that the, the bones and muscles become weak. You know, we need that regular weight-bearing activity, even in the form of walking, to keep the bones strong. Our checkup from the neck up and a selection from our healing muse. That's all coming up right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your weekly dose of information about health and medical issues affecting Central New Yorkers from the region's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Linda Cohen. On this week's show, what all new parents need to know as they prepare to welcome the new addition. Plus, we'll learn about osteoporosis. But first, mental health services are often underfunded and understaffed in today's healthcare systems. We'll explore some innovative ways to extend these all-important services. Well, with the rash of mass shootings in this country over the last few decades, there has grown a greater awareness of the need for mental health services and interventions. However, resources for these all-important services are often strapped, largely underfunded, and not readily available. Here with an alternative initiative to address this need are Dr. Stephen Glatt. He's Associate Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Upstate Medical University, and Dr. Sita Ramanathan. She's a psychiatrist with the New York State Office of Mental Health. Welcome to you both. Thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having us. Dr. Glatt, let me start with you. Um, we all know that mental health services have been cut over the last several decades. Tell us about that. What effect has that had? Well, I don't think historically anyone would point to a time to say where there was sufficient funding for mental health services, but now since the financial downturn of a few years ago, things are particularly desperate. There's more and more need for these services, yet funding for the services is either flat or declining or not increasing in pace with the cost of providing those services. So more and more kids are falling through the cracks. Yeah, and one of the things, Dr. Ramanathan, that we mentioned in the introduction was, you know, with all the mass shootings, with Newtown, with all of the terrible mass shootings that have occurred in this country, you know, obviously not just the gun lobby, but many people have said, well, it's a mental health issue. But then when they turn and look at where the mental health safety net is, it's pretty, it's got a lot of holes. So this, there's a new effort afoot to try to extend or expand mental health support. Tell us about what that is. So, I mean, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the Newtown shootings because that is where the whole um, uh, impetus started. Um, and it started with what is called, it, it, it was called, it is called Now is the Time, uh, which is what SAMHSA, which SAMHSA picked up, which is the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. Okay, so SAMHSA, mm -hmm. the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, right. is the sponsoring organization for this effort it's it's a sponsoring organization for this effort uh and as i mentioned it's called now is the time which which was i believe signed by president obama uh, a few years ago and as part of that initiative um, a lot of programs were developed for the transitional age youth which is youth between the ages of 16 to 25 years uh, one of them one of them is the first episode psychosis program the second one is uh, a promotion of mental health first aid. So this is called Mental Health First Aid, mm -hmm. and it's a specific specific initiative, as you said, from this Now is the Time um, initiative. Right. And so funds were made available to try to target a specific age range. Is that right, Dr. Glass? That's right. So this age range, 16 to 25 years, is when we start to see clinically a lot of signs and symptoms of mental illness emerge. Schizophrenia, bipolar disorder can emerge a little bit later than that typically. But you start to see what are called the prodromal symptoms, the early symptoms, especially some of the signs like withdrawing from a lot of social activities, a, a child or adolescent or teenager not enjoying the things they used to enjoy, engaging with their friends and so on. Those can be early warning signs. They're not always 
destined if they show those signs to go on and have mental illness some of that is just part of normal teenage behavior but we want to train people to recognize what's normal teenage behavior versus what may be problematic to reach out to those kids and then point them in the direction of the services that are available. So that's basically what you started to outline. So this program, First Aid Mental Health, first of all, what is it, Dr. Gladwell? I mean, what, give us an over, well, Dr. Ramathan, what basically, what is the concept here? Are you taking lay people? I mean, who are you training? Mental Health First Aid is training for the lay people. Lay, the layperson is trained in identifying signs and symptoms of major mental illnesses. They are trained on the resources that are available in the communities. Oftentimes people can figure out that something is going wrong but don't know where to go for help. So they're trained in that and they're also trained to act in, in some crisis situations before they, before before you call 911, how do I address, how do you address a person who's having an acute psychotic episode or is having an overdose? So they're trained in addressing some of these acute situations as they wait for help to arrive. Um, and um, any layperson can, um, can participate in this program. But for now, our program is just um, training people who work with young people. So youth workers. Youth workers. Youth development workers, people That's who right. might be in after school programs or, or have contact with that age range of student and that's what you've targeted to start with. To start but with. the program grew out of where? It's it's a global program. It's not just in this country. Yeah, it, it started in Australia in the year 2001 and since then I, it's, it's, it's been adapted by pretty much every country in the world. Uh, in fact, even in in our county, it's been going on for some time, um, uh, maybe around five or seven years. Um, it was. It's run by. It, it, the training is offered through contact. Uh, uh, community, contact services. community services. Uh, and what we are doing is expanding the program. So the notion here is to try to, in a way, kind of extend or broaden the reach of mental health services, both by having early identification, but also by able allowing people to be more knowledgeable about the resources that do exist in the community. So if they have a youth that they have concerns about, they, they can know where to go. But they first and foremost have to know how to basically even recognize the signs, That's as you right. said. Yeah, so if your mom or your dad or family member or neighbor is a psychologist or psychiatrist, they're going to see a problem and you're going to get services right away. But for the average kid, that's not the case. And so the people who come in most contact with them are their teachers or school counselors or other people, as you mentioned, involved in youth organizations. They're the people who we want to train to kind of act as a, as a, 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 a scout for those problems and then refer those kids to the appropriate healthcare professional. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen along with psychiatrist Dr. Stephen Glad and Dr. Sita Ramanathan and we're talking about a new international program that's called Mental Health First Aid. So the, the idea here is that now you're focusing on these basically youth workers but the program was designed to really train, as you said, any layperson who has interest in learning this kind of thing. So what's involved in the training? Is it a long period of time? I mean, how, how much training is involved? It's an eight hour long workshop. Eight hours. It can be done in one day or split over two days. Um, and um, there are instructors who, um, it, it's very experiential, so they'll give you examples. They'll do a lot of activities to teach people about- um, Like role playing. Role playing. Um, and um, there, so after, there is an ex the, after those two days, basically you are what certified. You are a first aider. You're a first aider. You're a first aider. You're and then are you also then supplied with an up to date resource uh, list, so to speak, of of what's available in your community, so right. that you can also communicate that. You go home needed. with a manual and an updated list of resources. There are services available in our community, but the hardest part sometimes mm -hmm. for parents when their child is starting to show symptoms is where do I turn first? You know, so as a member of NAMI, I often advocate call NAMI. We can help put you in touch with these mm -hmm. services yeah, too. Yeah, NAMI is. Yeah, National Alliance on Mental Illness. We have a very active Syracuse chapter. And when parents or loved ones of someone who has a mental illness need help, NAMI is kind of the safety net for those family members and to help them 
tell them about their stories, how I got services this way or that way. There's no formula really to getting services for your child when they're sick. You have to pull out all the stops, but it's best to dedicate your efforts in channels that are going to work. So NAMI helps with that. Mental health first aid helps with that too. It points these first aiders toward the resources that are most likely to help the kids. So that how do people find out about NAMI for specifically? Would they go on a website or is, can we link to that website? For NAMI, example? NAMI is very active in the community, but you can go to NAMISyracuse.org and find out all about the activities there. Uh, they're undertaking now. And the idea here is because you do often hear, I mean, in response to the, the, the fact that this has even had to be started, is you, you hear in the general population people say, you know, I have a child with emotional issues, but I have nowhere to go. Mm -hmm. You know, the schools can't handle it. There really aren't enough therapists out there. So you're saying that there really is more support in our community than we are actually aware of? Right. And some people hearing this will say, well, no, when my child was sick, I tried everything to get services and I was stonewalled. And that's still true. There are not mm -hmm. enough services, but at least knowing where to ask to get on the waiting list is a big start. And also, you know, I think it's important to mention that we started this segment talking about gun violence. But really, that's very, very rare. And most people, most kids with a mental illness are not violent. They're just having impairment in their day-to-day -day functional activities that the mental illness is getting in the way of. So that's the main target. It's not the violent offender or someone who's going to shoot up at a school. It's kids who are getting derailed from their normal activities. I think that's a very key point right. because we've actually done a number of shows talking about this whole connection between mental illness and gun violence. And in fact, it isn't a very strong connection. You know, yeah. contrary to, you know, the few outliers who actually do carry out these horrific acts, most people with mental illness are not going out and shooting up, you know, shopping centers. What's important, though, is that that puts it on the radar screen for people. It brings mm -hmm. it into the consciousness where people will get behind a mental health first aid awareness because they think that that's something that mental health first aid can damp down, and it will. But also, it's really going to help mostly kids who are not prone to that type of violence. Do you think also in working with the uh, youth workers and in training them in this way might also help them in their day-to-day -day responsibilities, apart from this idea of actually um, identifying someone with perhaps you know uh, troublesome behavior, just this type of training seems to me it might be helpful in a, in a more global way or right. a more general way. What's your feeling Just about understanding that? what the child may be going through. Um, the knowledge of the fact that the child may have a mental illness definitely creates a lot of empathy mm -hmm. in the worker and that empathetic attitude will help in their interactions with the children. Day to day, even apart from maybe Absolutely. identifying a crisis situation. Even yes. if a first aider never has to use their skill set to point a, to identify a child and point them towards services, just fostering that empath mm -hmm. empathy and that understanding of mental illness that they didn't have beforehand is going to be a good thing. How yeah. about in terms of a crisis, though? Because obviously, when a crisis occurs, everybody probably freaks out. If somebody's having a psychotic, a psychotic break or, yes. or you know, being delusional or what have you, I mean, do you think that the eight hours of training can provide enough of a, at least somewhat of a safety net for that, for that worker and for that child? So the idea of the eight-hour workshop is not to replace traditional services. It, it is not going to replace the ER or the EMS providers. The idea is to just it, it's just like CPR for physical illnesses. How we start the CPR, we call 911 and do CPR. It's the same way. You still call 911, but you're able to deal with the, I mean, handle the person in, or talk to the person in crisis. In an acute, very in acute, an acute manner. If, you may also be able to say that this is a situation I don't want to, I, I, I should not interfere. So you assess for safety before you uh, address the crisis. Uh, it is not to replace the emergency room, not to replace the ER, EMS providers. You still call 911 there. Right. Well, what do you see as, as, as um, this has gone on, as we said, through um, a, a funding through SAMHSA? Is this going to be something that will continue? Do you foresee something like this? Or is it going to have kind of a short shelf life, so to speak? Well, we're planning and uh, planning towards keeping this going on uh, for a long time. Um, 
at this time at least. Uh, we We're in the early stages. Right. We hope that we will show and have deliverables that show that this is worthwhile, this is worth investing in. SAMHSA won't continue to fund it forever, so we're going to have to mobilize other funding sources to get behind this, but we have to demonstrate that it's worthwhile for them to buy into it. To make it self-sustaining mm -hmm. on some level. So what have you found so far? I mean, is there any data, either studies that have been done prior to this elsewhere or, or any data that you've accumulated that suggests that it's successful? Not necessarily with regard for mental health first aid from my point of view, but the science is very strong to suggest that the earlier you intervene in someone who's having mental health issues, the better their outcome is going to be. The second thing that mental health first aid has um, and other literacy programs have shown uh, is um, uh, a lowering of stigma in the community. So that lowering of stigma helps people reach out to services uh, much earlier. Um, and that's been shown for mental health first aid all over the, all over the world. Um, we're hoping it'll continue in, uh, we, we're hoping to show the same results in our county as well. And we are collecting data. So when you come for the workshop, we will be sending out monthly follow-up surveys to see how you feel, how you're doing, um, and we will be assessing the change in mental health literacy. Great. Well, thank you so much, both of you, for coming in and sharing this very, very interesting and very hopeful program with us. My guests have been Dr. Stephen Glad, Associate Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Upstate Medical University, and Dr. Sita Ramanathan. She's a psychiatrist with the New York State Office of Mental Health. Coming up next, what all expectant parents need to know. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on air, Linda Cohen along with you. Well, first-time parents are often excited but also scared and a bit overwhelmed at the prospect of caring for a new life. Here with more on what new parents need to know is Kathy Narkavage Bradley. She's a registered nurse and the coordinator for Upstate's Best Beginnings Childbirth and New Family classes at Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Kathy. Thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having me, Linda. So becoming a new parent can really be a scary proposition. Tell us what you found in your role as a medical educator. Um, yes, first-time parents especially come to us taking these classes just being somewhat overwhelmed with all of the various information that is out there on pregnancy, parenting, labor and delivery. And um, they come to our classes and I help to um, encourage them to really um, educate themselves. Maybe dispel some myths. Dispel some myths, exactly. And um, really kind of be a backboard for them as well as providing them with the most up-to-date um, evidence-based information so out let's, there. So let's start. Give us, I, I want to do that kind of a thumbnail for the various stages okay. and have you give us a couple of do's and don'ts or a couple of principal points or okay. tips. During pregnancy, what are some of the things you tell your, your uh, class your class people. Yeah, well, we do. I do go over some do's and don'ts, um, and really the some of the basic things, such as um, getting early and regular prenatal care throughout your um, pregnancy, following good nutritional principles, such as um, following the My Plate recommendations of the USDA at ChooseMyPlate.gov, um, taking a regular prenatal vitamin as recommended by their OB provider, staying hydrated is really essential in pregnancy, exercise um, as long as there's no medical um, um, restrictions, right, they, um, exercise is good for pregnancy, um, labor and delivery, um, and also stay within, try to um, get good good amount of sleep, minimize stress during your pregnancy, what about, um, and all sorts. What yep. about weight gain these days? I know that that has been something that's changed over the years. At one point, there was a real attempt to restrict the amount of weight that a woman would, would um, put on during pregnancy. And then there was a period where they said, no, you can put on as much as you want. And we're, the pendulum keeps swinging back and forth. Where are we today? Um, generally, um, moms, for an average size mom, should gain about 25 to 35 pounds during their pregnancy. However, you want to follow, I always instruct um, new moms to follow what their 
OB provider recommends. Because some moms, it may be less if you're um, heavy, start out your pregnancy in a heavier weight, or some moms, it may be more if you're underweight starting out with your pregnancy. So there are guidelines, and yes, it's, um, but just follow your OB provider's recommendations. And I try to tell moms, you know, remember you're growing a baby. You're growing a baby, and don't, you know, be too concerned about, uh, um, about that. So exercise is important, but how about if somebody was, for example, a marathon runner or a very, you know, somebody who really exercised very rigorously prior to pregnancy, should they continue to do that during pregnancy? Right. Generally, whatever moms have been doing for their regular exercise is generally is what um, is fine to continue, um, you know, based on what your OB recommends. So yes, it's generally considered. So it's not a no, no at all. No. And and how about choosing or figuring out kind of how you want to give birth or where you want to give birth or under what circumstances? What do you, you know, do you kind of in your classes go over all the variety of choices? I mean, obviously when people come to you, many of them, most of them already have an OB chosen. Right. Yes. Generally, um, yes, it's a great thing to um, look at your your OBs as far as, um, you know, choosing an OB. And that generally will start before you're pregnant and and before you've come to my classes. Generally in our classes, we, um, you know, um, couples, moms are already established with their OB provider. So we don't so much focus on that, but we do focus on um, choosing a pediatrician, um, you know, how to find um, a pediatrician and, and at that point, because many, many don't have a pediatrician at that point. And that's a very important choice. But right. how about in terms of choosing how to give birth or whether to get anesthesia, what, right. what type of kind of pain relief right. is important? I mean, is part of your training of these moms, you know, because way back when I was giving birth, mm-hmm. you know, there was a real emphasis on the Lamaze technique and, and natural birthing. Right. And, and where are we at today? Um, so what we... Um, what I teach, I'm actually a certified Lamaze educator, as well as um, the classes we teach are called prepared childbirth, which basically we're providing information to moms and their support people or partners on what is um, what what options are out there. So we do um, provide Lamaze breathing and relaxation techniques. I do provide all sorts of information, and we practice comfort measures in our classes. However, um, we also do provide information on the risks, the benefits um, of the various OB um, interventions, medical interventions that may come up in labor. So we do cover pain medications, analgesia, anesthesia, um, epidurals, all of that information. Since um, it is a very um, common procedure, epidurals are really um, common these days, and many moms choose that. So we do go over the options. However, we do cover the risks and benefits so that parents, moms um, can make informed decisions. So it sounds to me like the whole message here is plan and prepare. I mean, know know what the options could be, think through what you might want, and then, but be prepared should you not be able to have what you want. Let's say you have a more problematic birth and you might have to have a C-section. Exactly, right. We try to prepare, and we do cover cesarean sections as well, which it is important because, you know, for moms to be prepared in the event that was a necessity during their labor. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen, along with registered nurse and parenting educator Kathy Narcavage-Bradley. We're talking about what all new parents need to know. Let me flip now to new parents of a newborn. I mean, what are the kinds of things that you tell parents of a newborn in terms of what's important? First of all, I can remember even way back the importance, uh, I was told even in the hospital, you had to have a car seat or a, a perfectly acceptable registered car seat be in, in order to take your child home from the hospital right. to begin with. But along with the along with those lines, along those lines, what are some of the other things that you begin to tell new parents? Um, well, we encourage, yes, all the safety, various safety um, topics are um, really key and often on the tops of new parents' minds. Um, we really highlight um, the importance and the benefits of um, breastfeeding for new moms and new babies. There's so many 
um, health benefits for mom as well as baby. Um, and we really get into delve into that so that um, that's on, on the, the radar for all new is, parents. Is it true since some people may not want to? I know that in my life I breastfed my children until almost a year of age. Uh-huh. But I think there is, there's kind of a new way of looking at it that perhaps if you can at least do some breastfeeding the first month, the first two months, what have you, even that is better than nothing. Right. So it isn't all or nothing. Am yes. I correct? Yes. Any breastfeeding is better than no breastfeeding. However, what, what the American Academy of Pediatrics and all um, recommend is exclusive breastfeeding for the first six months, really to get the best, the most benefits In from terms of the breastfeeding. Immune for the, yes, the um the um, antibodies that mom passes on to baby, um, as well as all of the um, various health benefits that uh, go along with breastfeeding. So babies have lower risk um, of infections, as well as lower risk of SIDS, sudden infant death syndrome, lower risk of asthma, eczema, as well as certain uh, adult diseases such as obesity and breast cancer. And really? the list goes on. There's there's um, so many benefits. And really, the bonding experience for mom and baby. Um, we really encourage moms um, to do um, skin to skin right after delivery to in- boost that breastfeeding success. Um, really, uh, the first two hours, if they can have skin to skin contact, at least for that first hour, it increases breastfeeding success. It also helps to stabilize baby's blood sugar, temperature levels, and increases that bonding experience. So it's really beneficial. Is, is there a service now made available to new moms who have just delivered in terms of people helping them with lactation? I yes. Mean, is that, is yes. that readily available in yes. hospitals yes. today? Yes. Um, hosp- you know, all hospitals, most hospitals, I should say, ha- have lactation services, so lactation consultants. And then all the n- nurses in the hospital are trained on providing breastfeeding assistance with um, new moms. And I encourage new moms in my classes to utilize the nurses in the hospital um, to help get that, you know, their baby's latch, um, you know, have them um, assist as far as checking to make sure baby's latching on properly and breastfeeding properly. So. so I guess one question I would ask, because it seems to me to be one of the largest things that challenges that face new parents, and I'm talking about new, new parents in the very beginning of bringing a newborn home, right. is this issue of sleep and sleep deprivation. Right. Where the baby should sleep, under what circumstances should you sleep, et cetera, et cetera. Right. What's your overall recommendation there? Yeah, great, great question. Um, really, what is recommended to decrease um, the risk of SIDS? Really, it's recommended that new babies sleep in the same room as mom. So in the hospital, we practice rooming in, or most uh, rooming in, where mo- baby stays in the room with mom. However, in a separate sleep environment. So baby has its own crib or bassinet, you know, right near mom's bed bedside um, is really the best place for babies to sleep. And for how long would that be the the kind of desired generally the situation? The highest risk for SIDS is um, the highest risk babies are from the ages of two to four months of age. But really, um, you know, during that, it's going to be an individual basis. But you know, during that first year, at least those six first six months um, would be. Beneficial. So you're saying it's really desirable to have the baby in the room with the parents, the mom, during the first six months, basically in a separate bassinet crib or something like that, but within arm's reach kind of thing. Right. And that, you know, it's going to be an individual basis as far as when the parents have them in a separate room, but it really helps to ease um, breastfeeding, facilitates breastfeeding, and also decreases that risk for SIDS. SIDS meaning sudden infant death syndrome, which I wanted to make sure Um, we made that clear. So um, in terms of, though, this whole notion of sleep deprivation or sleep sleep training, I mean, when is it possible or what what should new parents expect in the beginning? And then when can you start to see some kind of pattern emerge where you can begin to get some normal stretches of sleep? Right. Um, It's it's going to be... um, individual to to the baby there's no real real standard but um your um baby's sleeping in the room with you moms you, you're going to be breastfeeding if you're breastfeeding your babies you're going to be feeding them at least a few times during the night um you know by a by a few months or so you can expect them maybe to be sleeping through the night but not you know all 
all babies are going to follow a pattern. Really, for young babies, you can't spoil them. So, you know, you want to provide them that attention um, um, when so they're crying. or what. So it's on-demand feeding, On-demand feeding, exactly, is at, what is recommended. But at some point, is there a need to then encourage or when you have a sense they can sleep longer stretches to encourage them to stretch. Right, right. You're going to put them down, you know, asleep awake at night um, as they get older and um, they can, you know, will eventually sleep through the night on. So the hope is that you will start some kind of a sleep training perhaps after four or five months of age? Right, yes. Um, Eventually you'll be you know your baby will still need to nurse or um, at overnight will have sleep times when they will need to nurse at night and feed at night but yes um, at some point you will um, they will sleep in their own um, environment and will sleep through the night but it is individual to the baby so I can't you know as far as time frames right of course it, it's very individual well thank you so much this is a there's a lot to cover here and there's a lot of information but it's wonderful to know that you're offering all these classes and that people can go online and find out more about the variety and the vast variety of classes and courses that you're offering for expectant new parents and I encourage them to do so and thank you so much for coming in and sharing this very quick overview of um, what parents can expect in terms of a new child. Thank you so much. My guest has been Kathy Narcavage Bradley. She's a registered nurse and she is the coordinator for Upstate's Best Beginnings, Childbirth and New Family Classes. I'm Linda Cohen and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. Hi, I'm psychologist Dr. Rich O'Neill with this week's checkup from the neck up. Winter into spring. How? Well, folks, you know how in spring, on our first sight of snowdrops and crocuses emerging, who knows how into bloom, our hearts astonished gasp and throb and leap with joy. And you know how then, from the until a moment ago scrunchy skin on our frozen faces, a tender smile creaks through. And you know how we wonder about nosing our way through the absolutely, impossibly hard crust of our lives more often, perhaps most when the windy rains and icy scowls and blistering dark shouts whip about, wonder about how to turn our winter into spring, wonder especially about how when my winter and your winter seem so very different? Perhaps there's a hint in that snowdrop and crocus moment. What do we do to make that moment's joy? Pause, look, open, Feel, smile. How about we try that right now? Pause, look, open, feel, smile. I'm Dr. Rich, a curious gardener, O'Neill. Thanks for tuning in. Next up, all the latest thinking about osteoporosis and what can be done to help. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air.
This is Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen along with you. 54 million U.S. adults age 50 and older are affected by osteoporosis and low bone mass. That's according to the National Osteoporosis Foundation. And the number is projected to increase to 64 million by 2020 and 71 million by 2030. Here with more on this growing problem is Dr. Jennifer Kelly. She's Associate Professor of Medicine in the Division of Endocrinology at Upstate Medical University and the Clinical Director of the Bone Density Unit at Upstate's Joslin Diabetes Center. Welcome, Dr. Kelly. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for having me, Linda. So tell us what we mean when we say osteoporosis, and how is it different than osteopenia? So both osteoporosis and osteopenia are clinical diagnoses. They're made mostly with a bone density machine. So a bone density test gives numbers called T-scores, and depending upon where the person lies with their numbers, then we give the diagnosis. So a normal T-score is better than minus 1, like closer to 0. If it falls between minus 1 to minus 2.5, then that's considered osteopenia, and that's quite a big range. But then once it reaches minus 2.5 or less, that's considered osteoporosis, and that's when the risk for fracture increases. So but what is what are we actually talking about in terms of osteoporosis is this something is going wrong with your bones. So is it a thinning of the bones, a lack of strength, a loss of strength? Yes, it's kind of a combination of all of those things. So the bones, I think most people think they're just kind of sitting there, but they're actually very fluid and building and breaking down all the time. So when there's bone loss, there's more breakdown than building, and that weakens the bone and puts people at risk for fracture. So how do we know that we have it? I mean, are there symptoms that we can point to, or how does someone have any clue that they might have osteoporosis? Oh, and by the way, osteopenia, as you mentioned, is a kind of a lesser form. It's not true full-blown osteoporosis. Right, that's right. I mean, people with osteopenia can still break bones, and that's the problem. We don't have a magic ball to know who will break a bone or not, but the problem is once someone's T-score is lower and they fall into the range of osteoporosis, then they're more likely to break a bone. So now in terms of the... the, the um, how you know the symptoms. Oh, and how you know. So the problem is it, people don't know unless they have a bone density or they break something. That's the problem. It's one of these um, disorders that are asymptomatic. However, if somebody had a fracture that seems like it shouldn't have occurred, and we call that, like, say, um, non-traumatic or falling from standing height, that would be considered a non-traumatic fracture, then that should suggest that perhaps that person should be screened. If someone's had height loss, one and a half to two inches over the years, then also that might suggest a compression fracture. So that basically, this is a function of aging, am I correct? You don't get osteoporosis as a teenager. No, that's right, unless the person had risk factors or other problems when they were younger, because usually the um, peak bone mass is achieved when a person's younger, around age 20 or so, and then we... um, when someone gets older, they are more at risk for bone loss, particularly after menopause and growing older. So the bone basically, as you said, is laid down, and by age 20, you're at the peak in terms of the amount of bone or the strength of the bone. And then it slowly, over time, new bone or less new bone is laid down. Is that how it works? That's true. I mean, it is still important to do all the things that should be done for bone health because to maintain bone health and also it's not that the bone won't grow anymore, but you really kind of reach that peak bone mass in the younger years. But um, again, as we get older, we want to do everything we can to maintain bone health so that there isn't a drop when we get older. It doesn't mean it has to happen. I mean, some people are more prone to it than others, but we want to prevent bone loss after menopause and with age. I want to talk about some of those contributing factors. So when we talk about risk factors, like who is most likely, because we just started to say age may play a role. Besides age, what are some of the other things? I mean, are women more likely to have it than men, for example? Mm -hmm. Are there uh, racial uh, issues there in terms of who might get it? Yes, these are important points. So women particularly are more at risk, especially after menopause, because once there's lack of estrogen around, the bones break down more. However, men are also at risk, and I think sometimes women are screened more often than men, so we don't want to forget about them because they also can have fractures. And particularly with age, especially like around age 80, the risk for men and women is about the same because age really is an important risk factor. Other things, um, different medications such as steroids can cause bone loss, long-term use of proton pump inhibitors, um, Which if, are the things like for, for uh, gastric reflux, that right, kind of thing. Right, protonics, Nexium, yeah. those type of things, which are very popular, but it's, they're not recommended to be given long-term any longer. Um, other risk factors could be smoking, um, sedentary lifestyle, Caucasians and Asian background are more at risk, um, thinner body habitus. 
So you're saying like somebody who's thinner, basically they they have a smaller frame to begin with generally. Right, they're more at risk. How about family history? What role does that play? Oh, yes, that does play a big role. And that's one thing we always ask our patients if they have any um, parents that had um, fractures or osteoporosis because that does increase one's risk. Are there other endocrinologists endocrinological issues like thyroid issues or anything else that also can contribute to it? Oh yes, and we screen for those also. So um, if someone has hyperthyroidism, meaning too much thyroid hormone, either being produced by the body or taking too much thyroid hormone in a pill form. Um, also something called Cushing's disease where the body makes too much steroids. There's another disorder called hyperparathyroidism. The parathyroid glands in the neck um, secrete parathyroid hormone and too much of that can take from the bone as well. So basically the endocrine system does play a very important role here. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And the and the um, hormone levels in terms of your your estrogen also plays a very important role. Does it does it actually when you say postmenopause you tend to not build as much bone? Is it because estrogen is important in the process of bone building? Yeah, so estrogen helps to make, there are the cells in the body in the bone called osteoclasts that break down bone. So after menopause, the lack of the estrogen um, kind of ramps up this production of osteoclasts and they're breaking down the bone more. So an another thing, thinking about risk factors, we always ask for women that are before menopausal age to see if they're having regular periods because a lack of periods for a prolonged you know, time can cause bone loss as well. So a lot of factors. What about any kind of dietary factors? In other words, is the amount of calcium that you eat at any point play a role? I mean, is low calcium a factor, for example, in your diet? Yes, that is important. So we always ask people about how much calcium they're taking in. And, you know, there's been mention in the medical literature and the media about not taking too much calcium supplements. And, and that is recognized that people can take too much. And thankfully, it's easier to get calcium from the diet than other things like, say, vitamin D, where many times people need supplements. So a good rough um, estimate is to ask people to take in about 1,200 milligrams of calcium a day from all sources, diet and supplement, and not to exceed 2,000, because then they run the risk for um, too high of calcium, perhaps kidney stones, things of that nature. Yeah, and we're going to talk a little bit about treatment or that whole notion, but let me just interject here. Vitamin D has also been found to very, be very important as well. Yes. And Especially in our climate. Absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting because when in the medical studies, it shows that even people that live in warm weather climates, such as Florida, are also at risk for vitamin D deficiency because people are indoors a lot. They cover up. You know, we have to keep our skin safe as well. But it, it's tough to get enough vitamin D from food alone, so many people do need some form of supplement. And it does play a role also in bone Oh, yes, health. it's very important for the building of bone. And sometimes when we see patients referred for um, osteoporosis that perhaps their medication's not working well, sometimes it's just something as simple as their vitamin D level is very low and the, the medications can't work correctly. That's very interesting. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen along with endocrinologist Dr. Jennifer Kelly. We're talking about osteoporosis. So another factor that has been linked to this problem with bone um, loss or is this whole idea of a sedentary lifestyle, does mm -hmm. that play a role as far as you can see as well? Yes, definitely, because we know that when patients, you know, just people in general are sitting around that the, the bones and muscles become weak. You know, we need that regular weight-bearing activity, even in the form of walking, to keep the bones strong. And it's also been recognized more so in the medical literature that um, weak muscles, what they call sarcopenia or lack of muscle strength, um, you know, that leads to bone loss also because it's not pulling on the bone to keep it strong. How about drinking or tobacco? What yeah. roles do they play? So tobacco is not good for many reasons, but also it's, you know, it can cause bone loss and increase So risk. smoking really yes. can. Smoking does. And then also alcohol use, um, you know, small amounts of alcohol are okay. You know, um, the general recommendation is, you know, one alcoholic unit for women, two for men. But we know excessive alcohol use is bad for the bone. So you mentioned before the, the um, bone densitometry is a way of testing or a way of diagnosing. Is that the primary way to diagnose these days? Yes, that is currently the gold standard test that we have. And once you've determined that someone does have osteoporosis, how do you begin the process of figuring out treatment? I mean, is first one thing you do is you make lifestyle changes? I mean, what's your order of approach? So, well, it would depend upon how low a person's numbers are. So again, the cutoff for osteoporosis is minus 2.5. So if they're close to the osteopenic range and maybe don't have a lot of risk factors, perhaps like not on medications that cause bone loss or family history, we may try lifestyle changes for a period of time. Um, if, if that, But unfortunately, those things aren't enough to prevent fractures, and that's the main thing we want to prevent. So, um, you know, I will look at their calcium vitamin D intake, other, you know, changes that they could make, but then many times consider a medication. So getting to, me so basically, let me just review. So the lifestyle changes we're talking about is increased exercise, perhaps increased calcium and vitamin D intake, 
better diet overall, That's getting right. rid of smoking, getting rid of drinking and excess and all of that. Yes. But then you really do have to turn to drugs. So what are the drugs that you're finding these days are most effective? So the main group of medications that we use are called bisphosphonates and um, the one that's been out the longest, Alendronate or Fosamax. It works very well. You know, I think it's kind of gotten a bad rap in the media at times because, you know, there are rare side effects that can occur, but these things are extremely rare and the medication's been out you know, almost 20 years and has very good safety data. The main thing with bisphosphonates, and these medications work to stop the cells that break down bone. So by doing that, that increases bone density and cuts down fracture risk. With the medications such as Alendronate, which is once a week, there's Resigenate or Actinel, which is once a week or once a month, there's Ibanginate or Boniva, which is once a month, they all have to be taken a certain way because they could irritate the esophagus or the stomach. So they're taken first thing in the morning on an empty stomach with a full glass of water, and then the person's instructed not to lie down for the next half hour to hour and not take any other food, pills, or medicine except for water to make sure it clears the esophagus. So there, there are those concerns about it, but what when you said it's gotten a bad rap in the press, I mean... Remind us about some of those things. Funny fractures, yeah, so there, bone, uh, jawbone problems. Yeah, so you know, there are these very rare things that can occur. One thing is called atypical femur fractures, where people have these um, fractures occur in the middle of the femur that kind of come out of nowhere seemingly. That's the long bone in the leg. Right, that's correct. And But the, um, the problem is when things are rare, it's tough to get good data. But you know, the Bone Society has been collecting data on this now for quite some time. And there is data that suggests people that are on these medications long term you know, may be at increased risk. But in every one of their studies, there's always patients that have had these type of atypical fractures that have never been on any medication. So we can't say it's a cut and dry association. Some people may have anatomical features that put them more at risk. It may be another variant of an osteoporotic fracture. We just don't know. But the thing is, they're very rare, and about one in 100,000. And then when we look at fractures over age 50 are one in two. I mean, it's almost hardly so even a comparison. So the cost benefit, obviously, for these bisphosphonates is much stronger in the positive direction. Absolutely. And and they are effective? You've yeah, been they work very they... well, yes. And, um, and the goal is nowadays, we try not to give these medications indefinitely. That was my question. How long? So um, it depends on the person and the medication. Um, so many times we'll give them for at least several years, maybe three to five years. But however, if somebody's very high risk for fracture, and perhaps if they've already had previous fractures, it is better off that they may stay on them rather than come off of them because um, the risk outweighs the benefits. But we always reassess over time to see if the bone density is improved, if their fracture risk seems down, then perhaps we can consider what's called a drug holiday at that time. And then would you then go back on, I mean, in that in that circumstance? So then what we would do is monitor the bone density over time and see what happens. And if a decline is seen down the road, we may restart a medication like a bisphosphonate or consider one from a different class. With people living so long these days, and not everyone, but obviously some people are living longer into their 90s, and you even hear many more people are centenarians. Mm -hmm. it, it, do these types of drugs, do we know enough to know that these types of drugs can actually um, help us long term and really prevent the kind of you know devastating fractures that take place yeah, in you know, older age? Yeah, that is age? a good question. And many times in the studies, they do include pay people up to age 85, 90, because we know that the older someone is, the higher risk for breaking something. And that's something, too, when we think about our patients that are older, you know, many times we may try to lessen medications that we use for, say, cholesterol, blood pressure, because we don't want to cause problems, you know, in I mean, as they age, age you right, don't want exactly. to minimize yeah. those drugs. Right, but however, osteoporosis is one that we really can't forget about and need to stay diligent with because the older someone becomes, the more chance to break something, and we don't want that to happen. Are there other drugs besides the bisphosphonates that are used? I mean, I think there are, recently there's been a new class that's come out. Yes, so there's, um, well, one other thing I want to mention about the bisphosphonates, there is an IV form that's given, zoledronic acid or reclass, and that's given um, once a year through the vein running over 15 minutes, and there, it can also be given every two years for osteopenia. So by giving it through the vein, we bypass the GI tract and it's absorbed well and people don't have to worry about fasting. There's another group of medication, um, it's called Prolia Denosumab. That's an injection under the skin every six months. That works very well. There's a daily injection called Forteo that's given for two years that helps build bone. And then there's um, a medication called Avista, which is used for females after menopause that works on kind of the good estrogen receptors, not the bad ones, and can help prevent breast cancer as well. So, but basically prognosis with all of this, if you have osteoporosis and you are on this kind of medications, what's the prognosis for people? So the prognosis is good. I mean, the most important thing with these medications is taking them correctly you know, talking with your provider about any, you know, concern for side effects and maintaining a healthy lifestyle, regular weight-bearing activity, even walking, you know, regular calcium and vitamin D, avoid other poor choices like tobacco, excess alcohol. But most people do very well. 
and they can avoid fractures. Thank you so much for coming in. My guest has been Dr. Jennifer Kelly, Associate Professor of Medicine with the Division of Endocrinology at Upstate Medical University and the Clinical Director of the Bone Density Unit at Upstate's Joslin Diabetes Center. I'm Linda Cohen, and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Thank you, Linda. Poet Lisa Wiley from Buffalo, New York, uses the metaphor of skin to talk about relationships, one in particular that her speaker finds painfully difficult. Here is her meditative poem, Skin. Our largest organ holds us all together, contains a bleeding heart, insipid intestines, and everything in between. The pigment really doesn't matter, but wars have been waged over it. Young and smooth, it generously expands over nine long months and returns politely back in place. Excited when someone exposes a little too much, an early matinee. When insulted, we remember its presence, chaffed, brush-burned, singed, white fingerprints on a red shoulder. Cracked and wizened, we show respect in some cultures, seek its sage advice. The first layer's dead anyway, yet when someone gets under it, not in a Sinatra way, but the way you do, the sky isn't big enough for both of us. I know we can't crawl out of it, unzip the whole suit, collapse into puddles, so I'm glad you live thousands of miles away until the silences penetrate and they too burrow clear through my thin epidermis. Thank you for joining us for HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Please join us again next week when we discover more about the genes behind psychiatric disorders, plus the keys to stopping sexual violence on our campuses and beyond, and the importance of screening for vascular disease as an often silent killer. If you'd like to listen again to this week's show, you can find a podcast of it on iTunes. Just search for HealthLink on Air. That's all one word. And to keep up with all the goings on at Upstate, you can look for us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter, or you can check out the What's Up at Upstate blog. That's at upstate.edu slash what's up. I'm Linda Cohen. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.